Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Listen to these words and try and guess who said them and when. Quoting now, This discovery of yours will create forgetfulness in a learner's soul because they will not use their memories. They will trust to the external written characters and not remember of themselves. The specifics which you have discovered is an aid not to memory but to reminiscence. And you give your disciples not truth but only the semblance of truth. They will be hearers of many things but they will have learned nothing. They will appear to be omniscient but will generally know nothing. They will be tiresome company, having the show of wisdom without reality. No, this wasn't said about computers or PDAs or any form of digital technology. These were the words of Socrates in 320 BC, expressing his fear of written language. In Socrates' objections to writing, he worried that reliance on writing would erode memory, but also and maybe more importantly, that reading would mislead students to think that they had knowledge when they only had data. Today, similar debates are going on with respect to the digital world, leading to much discussion. At the forefront of a lot of this discussion is our guest today, Abby Smith-Rumsey. Abby Smith-Rumsey is a historian who writes about how ideas and information technology shape perceptions of history, time, and personal and cultural identity. She was trained at Harvard as a Russian scholar. She's worked in Soviet-era archives and spent a decade at the Library of Congress. It is my pleasure to welcome her here to talk about her new book, When We Are No More, How Digital Memory is Shaping Our Future. Abby Smith-Rumsey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Jeff. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you here. This debate today about how digital technology is shaping our memory isn't, in fact, a kind of recreation of a debate that we've been having throughout history every time new forms of communication and technology come upon us? Yes. I mean, as, as a historian, I know that it's a very old debate. And in, in times of rapid technological change, what tends to happen is people line up, um, either as nostalgics, you might say, people who fear the future. And then there are these techno-optimists, people who think that you know, this new technology in and of itself is going to liberate something in the human spirit, which will be all good and fix a lot of problems for us. So technology you know, always presents itself either as a potential for goodness or a peril. And one of the things that I've noted as an historian is, and this is just repeated all the time, technology is simply a tool that we build to respond to a demand that we have. And how it turns out to be used is entirely up to us. Some people use it to advance visions of progress, and some people use it, particularly information technologies, to actually control other people. And that, of course, was an experience I learned firsthand when I was working in the Soviet archives, how amassing lots of knowledge and information can be used not to advance human freedom and autonomy, but in fact, the opposite. So I think that, you know, Socrates, on the one hand, was right to notice that there was going to be a huge change in how humans deal with their own memory and the meaning, the moral implications of memory. But as far as the um, civilization goes, he got that part wrong. It's the societies that have adopted writing um, that really have led to greater progress and certainly the well-being of mankind, which is not to say that we didn't struggle very hard to learn how to manage writing and we're struggling very hard to learn to learn how to manage our knowledge now that it's not in physical form as well but that's a struggle that is worth engaging sooner rather than later 
part of the issue, though, not unlike, you know, looking back at Socrates, part of the issue is that we don't really know how this is going to play out, what the, the ultimate impact will be while we're going through it. No, that's one of the most fascinating features of what happens when we introduce a new technology. As I said, we tend to create these things to solve a specific problem, and then they turn out to have all sorts of powers that we didn't know about. I mean, one of the examples I talk about, a very simple one in the book, is the invention of the first kind of writing that endures on cuneiforms. These are clay tablets that have lasted, some of them, um, you know, uh, 3,300 years, sorry, uh, you know, almost 5,000 years, in fact, very durable. Nothing is that durable anymore. But in some ways, they were invented first by, you might say, accountants, people who wanted to just have some kind of durable physical object to memorialize a transaction between people. But within um, a few hundred years, people were actually realizing that they could inscribe prayers on these tablets and send them forward into time and space as they believed. So pretty soon, even a technological um, gizmo to solve a very practical problem, like how to ensure you know, tr- reliable trade, can become a vector of great spiritual development, You know, something that people discover um, new aspects of themselves. And you're right, we have no idea what this technology is going to develop. Um, and it's a time of great experimentation, um, both for good and for ill. And it means that we need to be very attentive to the things that we want the technology to do for us and the things that we're discovering that we don't want the technology to do for us. And that's something that I think the Sumerians struggled with. Certainly people in the print revolution struggled with. And we have the great joy of struggling with it now. (laughs) One of the other aspects of this, while technology moves certainly so much faster than evolutionary biology, that, that evolutionary biology does impact us and that our brains evolve and how we process information, how we store information is different. And and that's a part of this this discussion as well in some ways. Yeah, and that's what's so fascinating to me about the fact that Socrates, who didn't know anything about the human brain and its its ability to, to wire itself according to its environment, certainly nothing about evolutionary biography, really put his finger on this, which is that, you know, the writing will actually change the way we remember things. And that's just as computers are. Um, The fact that I rely so much on my computers to remember things for me really changes the way my brain works. The thing that um, biologists and certainly um, evolutionary anthropologists tell us is that this is the way the brain is supposed to work. It's not something that's aberrant. Um, The brain is actually born in this rather programmable or plastic state where it's, uh, and this is true of not just human brains, but brains of sort of zebras and amoebas and all human life. The brain is born with a certain capacity to learn its environment and it adapts to to the environment that it grows up in. So if we were to say that we shouldn't let these new technologies essentially rewire the brain, then we would be going against what biology has given us as a primary gift for adapting to our changing environment. There's one interesting feature. People keep asking me about whether this new technology um, is going to threaten the reading brain. What about the things we cherish about brains that read um, and learn how to, and are shaped by reading? And all I can say is that we now know um, through very good evidence, um, MRIs and other studies, 
that the brains of people who grow up reading at a young age are actually quite different than the brains of people who grow up in primarily oral cultures. And in some to some extent, um, our ability to read has cannibalized that part of the brain, used that part of the brain that in oral cultures is used for face recognition. Mm-hmm. So we know that reading has already rewired the brain, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a fact. The other, the other thing that, that may be similar to this is how we use handwriting and, and, and the part of the brain that's associated with that and how that may evolve differently as, as handwriting itself may become a thing of the past. Yeah, you know, handwriting is not something I know a lot about, um, and that's evidenced by the fact that my handwriting is not very good. <laughs> um, but that was true well before computers came along, I have to say. Um, but the relationship between what you might call manual dexterity, you know, using your fingers, and the development of the brain is something that neuroscientists and um, child cognitive scientists are studying very intensively now. Um, there's there's no reason to think that learning to um, write um, the way that say I studied the Palmer method when I was a child in elementary school um, and learning how to play an instrument and learning how to type on a computer they, they're probably not you know um, sort of qualitatively different activities but they definitely um, these are skills that we dedicate a lot of uh, muscle and brain memory for um, this kind of somatic memory this kind of physical memory and the more proficient we come at, become at one um, which which is good, um, the less we become proficient, that the we can come become proficient at another. Talk about the differences between personal memory and kind of the larger context of social and cultural memory and, and how that kind of fits into this equation that we're talking about. Well, it's a very good question. Um, I think that people grow up in society not understanding as deeply as um, as they could or should um, that so much of what they think of as their individual self is in fact shaped by the larger culture that they're in. Um, I think in fact they don't think about it because it seems so natural. It seems very natural to me that I would be growing up in the United States, learning to speak English as my first language, um, becoming proficient um, first at, at handwriting, well, best I could, and then at computer typing. These are all um, parts of a larger collective memory, you know, culture that we grow up in and that is our natural environment. Um, in fact, it's the world that we um, adopt and adapt to. One of the things that um, scientists say is unique about the human species, really unique among all primates and other creatures, is not just that we're cultural creatures, but it's the nature of our culture, that so much of what we learn, we are able to pass on across generations. That's what makes us really unique. So long before we invented writing, we had very well-developed cultures, um, very little documented, I should say. They're very hard to study because they were oral primarily, but probably for Um, hundreds of thousands, if not a million years or more, since we started to speak in some form or other. We were sharing knowledge, we were passing it on, and we were embodying it in forms that, such as dance and song, um, well before we were doing this in writing. And so much I think of what uh, we grow up in, in a specific culture, tells us as individuals, tells us who we are, tells us what we're capable of becoming, 
So, I mean, I'm, I'll give a personal example. As a woman, growing up in 20th century America, um, and now in the 21st century, I have very different expectations of what it means to be a woman and to lead a rich human life than if I had grown up in um, a foreign, you know, someplace like Europe in the mm. 1300s, where the roles of women were very differently defined. And yet, my sense of myself as a woman is a very integral part of myself. It's deeply personal. And I think of it as an individual aspect of myself. And yet, in fact, it's been really largely shaped by culture. Mm-hmm. So, Jeff, one of the reasons I think we're seeing on campus is so much discussion about who gets to tell the story of history. You know, students saying, we don't want to see buildings named after this person because we know about his racist past, or we don't want people who run our um, dormitories to be called masters. They should be called something else. These are human beings waking up to the fact that their world and their expectations and their sense of where they belong is shaped by the the heritage that they grow into. And it's quite marvelous to see college students saying, wait a minute, whose history is being told here? And who has the right to tell that history? Don't I also have a right to tell my own history? And so we kind of rearrange the cultural patterns, even of the naming of buildings on a campus. It's interesting, though, because that history is in so many ways the kind of remembered past. But thinking about the future in a digital world, it'll be far more than just the remembered past or that which might be written down. The fragments will be of audio, of video, of, of, of so much more that will shape whatever that, that future might be and how, and how the past is looked at 100 years or 200 years or 300 years from now. Yeah, and in fact, that's one of the most exciting things about this technology is it, it, we only invented the technology for recording images and sound in the 19th century. I mean, that's pretty recent. And already, um, we've, our, our whole cultural outlook, our way of seeing the world has completely changed because we have access to essentially real-time images and sounds. Um, just think about radio programs and, and our ability to listen to voices that were recorded previously and exist distantly from us. It's a very profound shaping. And I think about how these, these technologies were just beginning to understand their capacity to restore certain aspects of our own humanity that we lose over time. So I was just um, talking to somebody who has a friend who works with developing audio portraits of a person. They come in and um, they don't do an oral history, just they, they, they find out about the person's life, the sounds that, they, that the person grew up with and lives with, and records voices that are important to them, music that's important to them, and, um, and just regular sounds from life. That's an audio portrait. We now know from some experiments with Alzheimer's patients that providing people who lose major chunks of their memory, their, their sense of identity, when they have access to the sounds or the vision, visual cues of worlds that they can't really remember too well, it actually restores some part of their um, memory 
to them and they feel closer to a sense of who they are. They, it restores a kind of calm to them because they feel oriented and remember who they are. These are not things that words give to them, but these sensory cues. So, um, you know, your question about the richness of the kinds of memories that um, these new technologies will provide, we haven't begun to understand what they can do for us. And as I said, restoring our humanity in cases of illness or just recording the sounds of birds um, that may go extinct within 20 years. The other part of it, and, and this goes into a kind of brave new world category, but the degree to which biological memory and silicon-based digital memory come together at some point in, in some, some fashion is something that, that is part of this as well. Yeah, and the silicon part of it, it's quite interesting. Um, you know, there are experiments with people embedding kind, you know, these kinds uh-huh. of technologies inside their body, sort of incorporating these extensions of themselves. Um, I don't know enough about silicon technology per se um, to talk about its future because we, we know that we're, we are already bumping up against the limits of Moore's law in which we can have more and more energy in smaller, sorry, more and more memory in smaller and smaller silicon chips. So there are experiments with um, embedding digital codes and information in such things as DNA, for example. So as far as the silicon technology goes, I'm not quite sure. But if we were actually to um, embed some knowledge on on DNA or some biologically friendly um, substance, some organic substance, and um, implanted either in a robot or in ourselves, it's hard to imagine what the what kinds of capacities we'll be able to create um, for ourselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is very sci-fi, you have to say, Jeff. It is sci-fi. I mean, it, the, the interesting thing is the way that technology and philosophy come together in this whole framework. Yeah, one of the things that um, most intrigues me, and I think um, people don't don't realize quite because we have so much technology that does so so much for us. But certainly Socrates worried a lot about, which is the fact that a technology that we create, a tool, is simply an extension of our own desires and our own human will. So, you know, the technologies, it's hard to predict what technologies um, will arise. But we can certainly say that whatever do arise, we'll, be en- we'll end up using for reasons that we could not anticipate. I mean, to give you an example, when people invented um, airplanes, for example, um, you know, I'm not sure that the Wright brothers really thought that it would completely transform the nature of communication in the 20th and 21st century. I don't think they realized that people would be walking on the moon within a couple of decades of their um, turning a bicycle into a um, flying machine. To some extent, they wanted to just fulfill this dream that humans have had for a long time of flying. But in fact, um, the construction of those flying machines, those flying jalopies, and perfecting them over time, first by the military, of course, this is how technology always um, advances in leaps and bounds, the military recruits that technology for building military machines. But then those technologies become domesticated for consumer use. And we're just now beginning to understand the effect of air travel on human time clocks, 
on the consumption of um, fossil fuels, the pollution in the sky, the kinds of um, effects that air travel is having on the jet stream, which is affecting weather um, in Northern California as we speak. Every year now, the jet stream seems to have a different opinion about what it should be doing in the wintertime. That's completely unpredictable. And a lot of it has to do with these unexpected results of the, of the Wright brothers, um, what, you know, wanting to fly because they wanted to fly. The other aspect to this that, that you talk about and that this kind of an overlay to the whole thing is the degree to which it really will, will reshape and redefine what it means to be human. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's it. it I mean, I'm laughing because it's such a it's such a large subject, um, and it's something that I, sp- I say as a historian. Every time there is a new memory technology, people become fascinated by the ways that it changes and expands human potentials. So, one of the things that um, I talk about in the book um, is one of the effects of the print revolution, which happened in the sort of you know books, the first books that were on movable type were done in the 1450s, and it was a Bible. Um, but pretty soon, those um, those technologies, the, the technology of print, was kind of recruited by people who wanted to have more direct access to sacred texts, so they could have more autonomy over their religious opinions, rather than listening to the Pope. So, and that led, um, long story, but it led to Protestantism and um, the real disintegration of this unified world of Christianity. It also led to an entirely new kind of writing. So you have someone like Michel de Montaigne, who in the 1500s is writing in this completely new genre called the personal essay. I mean, completely new. New audiences, more people want to read that kind of stuff because it's because they identify with a lot of what he's talking about. We see this now with the web. We've never been in a world before where the barriers to reading and writing have been so low. I don't want to minimize the fact that there are um, a vast vast number of people, possibly a majority of people on the planet, who don't, don't have ready access to the Internet. But for those who do, that barrier to reading and writing, you know, posting your own thoughts, is virtually nil. I mean, it's almost vanishingly small. And so people are discovering um, all sorts of powers of self-expression. They're also discovering that there are a lot of people on the planet who are like them. It's really made a huge difference in the way that people think about solving social problems, grouping together to solve social problems. Mm -hmm. Um, It's changed the way we do commerce. eBay was just one example of how we um, exchange goods and we build in systems of trust with um, long-distance transactions with people we've never met and never will meet, you know, in that sense, it's like the cuneiform. But there's also a lot of peril involved. You know, it wasn't until recently that we could, that we began to see all this cyber bullying and cyber stalking. These were behaviors that are completely unacceptable and they're made much easier by the technology. So the technology has the ability to bring out the best in us and the worst in us. And I would just say it's very important at this juncture in time that as we discover what is good and what is bad about the technology, that we actively as citizens do things to teach our children how to behave online, advocate for policies that protect the privacy of our data. 
and even such technical issues as copyright, which um, in the long run will determine who has access to a lot of cultural content into the future. So these are these are new issues we have, um, new discoveries or rediscoveries of human nature. I can't say that human nature has changed too much. Um, there's the same there's the same group of good people and bad people who show up online. Um, you won't be surprised to learn that when printing was invented, um, it, it was it was immediately adopted. Or the early adopters were pornographers and um, religious extremists. They saw great opportunity in um, learning how to use print, and we saw that at the beginning of the web too. But we need to respond to these. We need to figure out how to behave morally and ethically with these new technologies. And you know that's what makes this time so exciting is that. We're the ones who get to learn what the technology can do. And by that, you know, just confront our own humanity in a deeper way. And because it's the Internet, we get to show up and do something about it. It's not like the print world where we would have to go through lots of gatekeepers, publishers, and other things like that. We actually get to interact directly and give our voice to these issues. The, the other side of that same coin is the degree to which all of this, all of our personal digital memory lives on long after us. It's the way that, that you know, people talk about Facebook pages for people that have passed away that are up uh, seemingly indefinitely. Yeah, you know, it, it is one of these bizarre paradoxes um, because, in fact, there's no sure way that to preserve digital information for, say, 50 or, or 100 years like we can preserve things in books. But it does seem that um, the data that we put online doesn't disappear exactly the way we want it to. And this, I think, is one of the huge policy issues ahead of us is how do we actually, we as individuals and as a society, craft policies that allow the person who creates the data and posts it on Facebook, which is a a private company, how do we actually exercise control over our data? The Europeans are struggling with this. They're arguing about this thing called the right to be forgotten. Um, But uh, but beyond the right to be forgotten, taking down anything we don't like about ourselves, um, which has its own real hazards, um, I think that we ought to be fighting for the right to privacy in a way um, and, and come to agreements, licenses that we have, contracts we have with these service providers and social media sites that we get the control of our data in the um, personal data um, now and in the future. And I think we will as soon as people understand that they don't have that control. Most people assume that because it's personal data, it's theirs and it belongs to them. But, you know, that's not actually true. Um, And even, you know, more bizarre than Facebook sites of people who have passed on um, is uh, people who actually go online to um, express, say, um, condolences, you know, or condolence books or have a wedding site. You know, they go on, um, they, they have all of their wedding activities documented online with a company that gives them this service for, you know, for free or relatively cheaply. And then in a couple years when they want to look back at that condolence book or this wedding photos, they can't find the data. It, it's interesting that it's also attitudes about this are also generational. What do you mean by that? that? That younger people have a very different attitude about privacy and about information than, than boomers, for example. Yes, I see what you're saying. Yes, um, I think part of the reason is that um, these millennials, people who grow up as digital natives, 
um, just understand the technology differently than we do. Um, I mean, it's two things. One is they understand the technology differently. They, you know, you and I probably grew up as a, as print natives, and we sort of absorbed all of the ethics of behavior around print. Um, as kids, we were learning how to be print literate, and kids now grow up in a different environment, and it's online and it's digital, and so these are digital natives. Um, but I, so I think there's that difference. But the other thing is, after all they're still young. I think that when the first or second generation of digital natives turn 40 or 60, and most of them will probably turn 80, they will have very different attitudes towards um, the information behaviors of when they were young. Just thinking back myself, I used to spend as a teenager endless amounts of time on a telephone. That would be like the, the current version of texting or something, right. Instagram. Um, and now, of course, as an adult, um, I'm much more um, careful about my time, much more parsimonious, I'd say. I, I don't spend very much time on the phone. Um, so I think that sometimes these things we think of as generational is just a certain generation looking at another and seeing the human life in a different cycle. Um, and so I think that many of the people we see with these attitudes towards privacy will actually grow up uh, get jobs, raise families, and be mocked mercilessly by their own children about their fuddy-duddy technologies like Facebook. And so I think that we'll learn. Um, uh, we'll learn different protocols around privacy, but I think that privacy will be as important to the digital natives over time as it is to the rest of us. Abby Smith-Rumsey, her book is When We Are No More, How Digital Memory is Shaping Our Future. Abby, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you very much, Jeff. Appreciate it.